Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. So with that, I'm going to start two minutes early here. So welcome, everybody. Roadblocks to renewables. If you're trying to get to Houston, you're on the wrong plane. Um, get off now. Um, so we're, I'm not going to repeat everybody's uh, bios. You've got them in front of you. Their names are right there. So we're going to jump right in by talking about why we're talking about this. So I've covered some energy, but mostly climate change issues over my career. So I'm not and don't pretend to be a renewables energy expert. However, I think we're talking about renewables because if you've been following climate change science for any period of time, you know that the consensus practically unanimous is that one of the things we have to do is get off of fossil fuels as fast as possible. How are we going to do that? Why is it difficult to do that? Is it a technology problem? Is it a policy problem? Um, and these are the kind of issues that we're going to try to um, explore here today. Ground rules, when we get to the Q&A, uh, working journalist first, state your name and affiliation. We'll try to repeat your question for the microphones because they're recording this. So thanks for coming. And I just want to start by asking everybody on the panel to talk about what do we talk about when we talk about renewable energy? Is renewable energy the same as low carbon energy? Is nuclear energy the same thing as solar power? So everybody, maybe in turn, and feel free to start. Sure. When we talk about renewable energy, what's that mean to you? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Uh, if you didn't read my bio, I, um, I work for a solar company uh, called Sunrun, uh, which is a residential solar and storage company. So generally, I would say I think of solar energy when I think of renewable energy. Um, and and um, I live up in Oakland right now, uh, work out of San Francisco, and we've just are in the middle of experiencing major blackouts. Uh, and so I would say that uh, renewable energy is more important than ever, and particularly solar and batteries, which I'd like to talk about a little bit later, is turning out to be really critical in showing what it means to be not only renewable but resilient because people who have their own source of solar and batteries have been able to keep their lights on during this um, situation. So renewable, you know, generally in my mind means clean. It means something that you are going to be able to um, uh, create again, uh, which you can. The sun comes up every day uh, for the most part. Uh, and so I do take some um, uh, questions. Uh, I, I would not consider nuclear energy renewable. It's clean in some ways. Uh, but I do think renewable energy uh, includes things like solar and wind. Rick, good shot. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm uh, Rick Martin. My byline is Richard. And I work for S&P Global Market Intelligence, which is a unit of Standard & Poor. We're sort of the news and information and data arm of Standard & Poor. And I'm based here in northern Colorado. Um, I'm in Boulder. And so I don't really have a definition, but I want to go back to a couple of things Dan mentioned. First of all is the distinction between renewable and zero carbon energy. And if you look at um, 
I think there's now a dozen or so states that have passed some form of measure saying we are going to decarbonize our uh, energy system by mid-century. Some of them are 2035, some are 2040. But some states have said we are going to go 100% renewables. Some states have said we are going to go 100% carbon free. In Washington state, for instance, they have a lot of hydro. So it's relatively easy for them to get to zero carbon. It doesn't mean they're going to be building a bunch of solar farms in the Pacific Northwest, which would kind of be difficult anyway because the sun doesn't shine. So that's one thing. Um, and mention nuclear as not being renewable. Well, maybe it's not renewable, but it is our primary source of baseload zero carbon energy uh, electricity right now, and we are shutting down nuclear plants. So that's one of the things we are doing to shoot ourselves in the foot as we try to, to decarbonize the, the power sector by mid-century if we are to have any hope of, of meeting or getting close to the, the Paris Agreement targets. So I'll pause there. So good afternoon. I, uh, my name is Jonathan Edelman. I work for Excel Energy. Um, you can read my bio as well. Uh, and uh, I'll kind of kind of maybe continue off Rick's perspective and, and share things, I think, from a from my perspective in the sense that I think the better, I mean, we can all look up the definitions. I think we can, you all probably know that better than I do. But I think the real question is, what's the objective? And um, I, from my perspective, the, objecti the objective is to uh, decarbonize the economy. And the question is, is do we sh can we only achieve that through renewables, or can we use different sources to achieve that more effectively? And when I say effectively, I mean reliably, I mean affordably, I mean safely. And so I think the question I ask is, if we limit ourselves to just using renewables to take carbon out of the atmosphere, is that the most effective way to do it? And I think that from our perspective in running a utility grid, having the ultimate accountability for a liability, having the ultimate accountability for affordability from our customer's perspective, um, looking beyond just renewables to decarbonize the economy is the, is the right direction to take. Um, so everybody's going to have a quick presentation, um, but uh, I'm reminded of a, a, a Dutch saying, and if there are any native Dutch speakers, please forgive me, but it's for niks gaat de zon op, which means for nothing the sun comes up, everything else you got to pay for. <laughs> um, and so when we start talking about all these different <laughs> alternatives, um, I have to realize that every single one of them has an environmental footprint, has an environmental cost, whether it's solar farms in the Mojave that take up de desert tortoise um, habitat or, um, you know, wind power that has been implicated in some problems with both sighting and noise and apparently sometimes birds. Uh, that seems to be debatable too. But anyway, so there, this discussion gets pretty wonky in a hurry because we talk about rates and we talk about technology, we talk about laws and the Federal Power Act and all these different kinds of things, but I really want to try to focus on this idea of roadblocks. What, what is preventing us from doing it? Because we've seen remarkable transformations um, in 85, I think it is, Rick probably knows this, cold. We got somewhere close to 60% of the U.S. electrical uh, uh, system was provided by coal. Uh, it's anticipated will be below 20% in the next uh, 20 years. So we are capable of these rapid transformations. What generates those and what prevents them is 
sort of what I really want to focus on. And we'll start with Jonathan. I'll fire up your presentation and take us through that. So I guess I'll get started as he as he fires this up. I know we're on limited time. So again, just to kind of reference kind of why I'm here and, and, and what I do. So Excel Energy is a large vertically integrated utility company. We cover eight mid <coughs> Midwestern states. We've got about 3.5 million electric customers, a couple million gas customers. Um, our operations cover about 70% of the state of Colorado. We're in Texas, New Mexico, and then in the upper Midwest, New, uh, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin. Um, as a company, we've uh, always been, I would argue, very progressive from an environmental perspective. We've been managing um, some of the nation-leading energy efficiency programs for decades now. Uh, we've been the number one wind provider in the United States. Uh, I think we took that title about 14 years. Um, so I've always been very progressively focused on the environment, both from a, just a company belief perspective, um, but most importantly, it's been something our customers have wanted. Um, so that's kind of the overview of Excel. Hopefully, uh, I want you to have all to close your eyes and envision. <laughs> you want me to hold them up? Yeah, we could hold them up. Um, simply put, the company has, and, and I like it because it's very simple for me, we have basically three primary objectives, and that's uh, leading a clean energy transition, and that really has to do with, and I'll talk more about this, of course, um, but driving uh, not just carbon reduction in our system, but we've seen dramatic reductions of all of the pollutants that, come, that have come out of our traditional generation. Um, really serving our customers, enhancing their experience and how they interact with us. Um, and then lastly, keeping bills low. And uh, I manage uh, the generation planning for Excel. I manage that across all eight of our states. Vanna, one more slide. <laughs> we'll keep going. So, um, but I manage that generation planning across those states. And really what we've seen over the last um, handful of years is that we've been able to offer customers more green energy, more of the products that they want. Um, we've not been driving that strategy out of a compliance perspective, but really out of economics. We've been able to actually buy down the cost of our of our system, lower customer bills, which on average we've lowered them five years running, offer them a greener product and a whole handful of additional choice products that are kind of tied to those environmental options. Um, I really find it um, engaging. I sit at the center of that with generation planning, and it really is an exciting transition for the industry and for us as a company. Um, with that said, um, last December, our company, and we were really the first major U.S. utility to announce a plan like this, um, but we've set an official goal for our company to eliminate 80% of our carbon by 2030 and then ultimately 100% by 2050. Um, I think you've now seen a number of follow-on announcements from other utilities that have kind of been you know, around this uh, very similar objectives, very similar goals. Um, and again, back to our opening question, I would point out that, again, and I'll talk about the renewable aspect of this, but this is a carbon uh, objective, not just a renewable objective. So, I can do that. Is that better? Okay. We can squeeze more people in, too, if you guys would like to. <laughs> okay, so um, we talked earlier about kind of what the makeup of the U.S. system looked like. Um, I think Excel Energy is, is no different from a starting point of kind of the balance of the industry. Um, our end goals are quite a bit uh, more aggressive at this point. But so where do we start? So if we look at Excel Energy, basically in 2005, which is kind of like the starting point of a lot of these um, terms we talk about externally, 
um, we had about two gigawatts of renewables in our system. That was mostly hydro. And about 60% of our energy was coming from coal. So if you fast forward today, um, we've already achieved about a 40% reduction or so uh, in our carbon. Uh, you can see we've almost halved the amount of coal on our system, and that's been major plant closures that we've seen in Colorado, some already in place, some coming, as well as in uh, the upper Midwest. Um, and now we're sitting with about 10 gigawatts of renewables on our system. So if you fast forward then to 2030, which is that 80% objective, um, and again, there's a lot of regulatory proceedings. There's a lot of stakeholder intervener process that's going to occur between now and 2030. Um, I'll spend most of my time working on that. Um, but you'll see basically the, the makeup of getting to 2030. Um, we see about a 60% renewable system. Uh, we have about we have actually three nuclear units on our system um, in Minnesota. Um, so nuclear, which is again dispatchable carbon-free gen, makes up about 10% of that, and little tranches of gas and coal. Um, to support the operating needs of the system. Um, and again, seeing about a 22 gigawatt renewable system. So if you look at those numbers over the course of 25 years, which in utility terms is not, you know, that's still pretty quick pace for us. We're a pretty slow industry to move. Um, but it's over a tenfold increase in the amount of renewables on the system. So as we look to 2030, and this is where we get into some of those roadblock discussions, um, when you look at that transition to 2030, clearly renewables is the foundation of that transition. Um, it's critical. Um, the next bullet over here, and these are where we get into some of these challenging roadblock issues, um, and I'll speak to all of them, are reliability, affordability, and public policy. Um, those all need to line up in the right way to make this work. Um, you know, if we undermine, and, and you know, California is experiencing some of this today, um, but if we undermine the reliability of the system, particularly as we move to intermittent generation, if we don't have the support behind that and people's lights go out, um, it will undermine the transition to carbon reduction. Um, so that's critically important. Uh, the next is affordability. Um, we have been able to blend down customer costs over the last few years, um, but we need to make the right decisions to do that. If we look at carbon light or carbon free technologies, they're not all created equally. That big solar facility in the desert is significantly cheaper than, for example, a rooftop system today. Um, that may change, but today that's how it's set up. And so we need to find the right integration of new resources to make this affordable. And then, of course, public policy and having the right rules to facilitate this transition is critical. So I'll just close. So that was kind of the 2030 vision. Uh, I think that we've modeled this many different ways. We absolutely believe that we can transition to an 80% carbon reduction using existing technologies, do it reliably, do it affordably, and we can make that work. As you look beyond 2030 and that last 20%, uh, that challenge is far different. Uh, the foundation of renewables will still be there, of course. Um, but there, we do need technology development to facilitate that transition and still honor those cornerstones that we have the responsibility to do, reliable, safe, affordable. Um, we see lots of technology development occurring in this space, and we're very confident that that will come, um, but it is needed. Um, when you look at the um, progression that's already occurred in renewables and storage and cost improvements, I would say never bet against technology. Um, these things will weave in and we will achieve that objective. But again, as we look at the system today, uh, we see that renewable transition occurring now and then this further technology evolution will weave in as we make that final transition to 100% reduction.
Did I do Thank five you. minutes? I was going to get a hook if I didn't do five, yeah. so hopefully I'm close. Um, great. Let's let's put a marker down. I'm going to move to Ann now. But let's put a marker down about the, your comment about compliance and whether the utilities are going to lead the way or they're going to be dragged there kicking and screaming. Um, Great. Or both. Or both. <laughs> okay, well, he puts my slides up. I can tell you I have a different vision. I might almost tell you to close your eyes and envision a different world. Uh, what we just heard, um, Jonathan, was a centralized system, whether it's centralized with clean energy or with old fossil generation or nuclear. What I think we really need to get our arms around, and I'm so excited there's so many journalists interested in this, is we really need to start asking tougher questions um, to the status quo, because the status quo isn't working. It's not working. We're definitely seeing it in California right now. We've seen it in Puerto Rico. The systems that rely on centralized energy and these very expensive transmission and distribution systems are not affordable, they're not reliable, and they're not safe. Um, before I came to Sunrun, I served as a regulator in the Maryland Public Service Commission, and those are clearly the principles the utilities are supposed to be operating. I also served in a similar position to a utility PSE&G for seven years before I became a regulator. So I've kind of seen this, and I definitely gave that same mantra over and over. We're about safe, reliable, affordable energy. But we're in a different day, right? We're in a different day where climate change and where technology, I think both together, are pointing us to a time where we have to start looking at other solutions. And the other thing before I go into my quick slides, are let's think about the transition we went from mainframe computers to you know, my little handheld computer and all of yours, right? Technology is moving us to a more decentralized world, right? We have the capability and people have the options now to take more control of their power and they're wanting to do so. so it's really critical, no matter, you know, for the utilities and for the competitive, you might call us disruptors, to really start working together because what the customers want is the ability to find more sustainable solutions, and they're coming. And that's why I want to go through a couple of slides of what we're doing on the ground, and then hopefully we're going to be able to find a way to get these two visions to work a little bit better together. So. Edison Electric Institute is the um, association for the utilities, and they themselves have found that 70% of the public believes that 100% of electricity should come from renewables. So the good news is that the utilities and utility associations are pretty much not fighting renewables anymore. And I'd have to say Excel has always been one of the cleaner utilities, but there are others. Uh, we operate in 22 states, in Puerto Rico, in the District of Columbia. Trust me, there are others who have not been quite as welcoming to uh, renewable energy and certainly not to distributed um, options. And even 51% um, believe that it's a good idea if their bills went up by 30%. Not that we think that's a good idea. And I will have to say that this idea that utility scale is cheaper than distributed is really not factual. And I'd ask all of you to use your best reporting on that. We know that um, to get that energy from the desert to where it's used. There's a lot of line losses. There's a lot of costs involved in that. Um, and then there are also a number of benefits from actually uh, creating the energy where it's used. So uh, the cost issue, I think, really has um, really deserves a lot more attention and a lot of issues, too, into what are the benefits and what are the costs? What's the range of things that are considered in that cost-benefit analysis? 
So this is, I think this is supposed to turn into, well, maybe it's not working. That's really too bad. This is kind of a cool graph <laughs> that one of my colleagues did, which is like a time change graph, which shows you how quickly, but you're not seeing it at all, but just how quickly the uh, transition has happened and the number of people in California that since 2007 adopted solar. And just in the last few years, the pickup of interest in what we call Brightbox, but it's our solar and battery um, combination it's been really quite remarkable you know we've probably been doing this at Sunrun for about two years and we now have in parts of California 60% of customers who put solar on the roofs are now also getting a battery um, statewide it's something like 25% but our sense is like the our our internet uh, did not crash like PG&E's but we have a lot of attention in the last few days because people really are desperate for saying what can I do to be able to keep my energy supply on and having solar and batteries on your home with a smart inverter allows people to disconnect from the grid and continue to serve their essential functions so sorry this isn't working but that's okay it's a cool um, graph but we'll let it go now this issue of affordability one of the things that we're seeing, which is why it's so essential for us to work together to start looking at these distributed options, is that the electric utility industry is proposing to spend up to $2 trillion over, you know, that was, that was up to 2030, and it's for upgrading this traditional 100-year-old system, right? And the problem when we get to what are some of the barriers, one of the absolute barriers is our regulatory structure. The incentive for the utilities right now is to upgrade the existing system. It's to make capital expenditures on transmission, on distribution, on replacing substations, when in fact there could be better alternatives that are less expensive and more reliable. Some states are really seriously looking at things called non-wires alternatives where you'll set, utilities will be told to put out an RFP and say, okay, before I upgrade the station equipment, um, can somebody else give me another idea? And those ideas could include uh, centralized storage. They can include, as we are proposing, um, by the way, in parts of California, 5,000 houses with solar and batteries. We'll aggregate them. When they're aggregated together as a virtual power plant, you can you know, avoid having to, um, or, or you can shut down one of those natural gas peakers. That's one of the ideas we're floating with the um, LADWP utility right now. So this is the picture. What we're facing right now is potentially a future of, of significant capital expenditure that will have to be paid for by customers over 30 years and these are going to become largely stranded costs as more and more customers decide they don't want to pay those costs. Instead, they want to invest in their own energy system. And I think I have one more. Then I'll quickly finish here. Um, so this is a picture we can talk about more later. But partly wanted to say there is so much exciting going on developing at the edge of the grid. Again, just in the last few years, this is what Sunrun, our company, is doing, but others are doing it as well. And a lot of it has responded to different types of regulatory structures. You know, I have over there on the left, in Hawaii, we faced pushback from a utility on the amount of solar on the system. We were restricted, our customers were restricted on being able to share their solar with the system. So what did they do? They wanted to buy batteries. So they are basically self-supplying. 
not the best option for the system. It would be great if we could share that energy when it's most needed, but because of that, customers responded, they're buying batteries. Um, California, they've adopted time of use rates, which means our customers get paid almost nothing in the middle of the day when solar isn't worth much, so fine, they have batteries. Now with a the battery, they um, use, use um, ener cheap energy from the grid at noontime, they save theirs, and then they can share it with the grid when it's really valuable at the end of the day. Um, and you go all the way out here, some of the more exciting things that we're seeing is, um, for any of you from the Northeast, Last year, we were allowed to bid into what's called New England ISO, which is the wholesale market. And we are, again, as I said, going to aggregate 5,000 solar and storage units. And as a result, uh, that is being viewed as capacity, and, they, and all of the ratepayers benefit because we were able to bid in and reduce the overall cost um, of those wholesale prices. And most exciting to me um, is there's one in Oakland, where I live. Oakland, California, has some of the most polluted air in the country. Down in West Oakland is a very poor area, and they suffer from really bad environmental harm, not just the climate impacts, but um, uh, emissions, other emissions. And we now have a community choice aggregator who has contracted with Sunrun. And again, we're going to have take units on low-income multifamily homes and or, or apartment buildings, and we are aggregating those, and that is meeting what's called their resource <coughs> adequacy requirement, which means they don't have to pay for some far-off amount. They also don't have to increase the cost of capacity, you know, as the state as a whole. So this is a great story of where the people who are being most harmed by climate, most harmed by pollution of cars and trucks and coal that's coming through the bay, um, they're actually going to have access to clean energy that they themselves are generating. So, thanks. Thank you. Well, this is an unintentional but perfect segue into, into Rick, so his presentation, because what, what are we investing in? And are we investing in some of the wrong things? I think uh, Mr. Martin here will have something to say about that. Give me a second to get that up. So I can just skip my presentation now because Dan just told me. <laughs> um, yeah, so you may think that you wandered into the wrong room here because I'm actually going to talk more about fossil fuels than I am about renewables. And Dan, oh, thank you. Um, Dan hit it on the head. Um, the problem, as I see it, is not that we're not building enough of the right stuff, because if you look at the curves for renewables, it's all deployments are up and to the right and prices are down and to the right. And that's an industry in uh, boom mode. Unfortunately, we're still building too much of the wrong stuff, specifically natural gas plants. And that's what I'm going to talk about. So as I mentioned, I work at S&P Global, and we've spent the last year working on a pretty big series that we're calling Overpowered, and it's about the power glut in the U.S., specifically around natural gas. And if you look at, I'm sorry, can you go back? Um, the very first slide is actually a photo of a, a big natural gas plant in California called the Inland Empire Energy Center, which was built less than 20 years ago. And at the time, it was considered a state-of-the-art. It was these new turbines that General Electric had developed, and it was going to supply power to California for 40 years or so. They're shutting it down. They are shutting this thing down after about two decades because they don't need the power. It's expensive to run. Those turbines are now outdated, et cetera. So um, 
obviously we have a natural gas boom in this country being fueled by uh, low cost shale gas, as well as what Ann um, alluded to, which is these outmoded regulatory structures. Um, utilities with, you know, I think I agree that Excel is a bit of an exception in this regard, but a lot of the traditional utilities, they still get paid not for selling electricity, they get paid for building stuff. And they're continuing to build natural gas. So what's happened in this country, you know, our carbon intensity, the unit of carbon emitted per unit of GDP has gone way down, and it's because we've gotten off coal. But what's happened is we've kicked the heroin addiction of coal, and now we've got this morphine addiction to natural gas. And it's still going to kill us. It'll just take a little longer. Um, it might not. <laughs> so, um, you know, in, in the last 10 years, since the, the Great Recession, the U.S. has added about 120,000 megawatts of natural gas capacity. That's more than the total capacity of the country of Italy, and a time when demand is more or less flat. Um, meanwhile, we've got about 200 new gas plants, another 70,000 megawatts, which is more than Florida's total capacity, that are planned over the next 10 years or so. And again, there's these skewed incentives for utilities to keep, to keep building these things. And Jonathan talks about reliability. He's absolutely right. The utilities have an absolute imperative to keep the lights on. And it's a dilemma. And I don't dismiss the, the hard choices that are facing big utilities. But the fact is we're building all this infrastructure that within 20 years, if not 10, it's going to be obsolete and it's going to be more expensive to run than renewables. And the Rocky Mountain Institute, this is not just me saying this, the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is based here in, um, in uh, Snowmass, came out with a study just a couple of months ago saying that by about 2027, 70% of the natural gas fleet in this country is going to be more expensive to run than wind and solar. And what that means is by mid-century, when everyone agrees, we have to shut down the fossil fuel power system. We have to decarbonize our um, economy by 2050, or you, know, you all know what's going to happen. According to the U.S. Energy Inf Information Administration, at that point, gas will still supply 40% of the electricity in this country. And even coal will still supply about 17. So the majority of our power is still going to come from fossil fuels if we stay on the, uh, on the track we're on. So this is just, I've got some data-heavy charts here because this is what we do. Um, I'm going to invite you to... Uh, follow me or follow SPGMI underscore energy on Twitter. Um, and all of our stuff is behind a firewall, but we supply a lot of free links on social media. When this series comes out, hopefully in the next few weeks, um, you'll be able to see the free links. And it goes into deep um, reporting on the incentives and the market structures that are leading to this oversupply. So the black bars here are what's been built, as I alluded to, the gray bars are what's planned. And if you look at like PJM, which is the largest grid operator in the U.S., it stretches from like uh, shore of Lake Michigan to Delaware, covers much of the eastern U.S., they're planning another close to 30,000 megawatts of new natural gas capacity. It's all going to come up online in the next 10 years, and it's, they're going to be white elephants. And it, it's really interesting. If you look at the, the sales of these power plants, one, one 
um, little notice trend that we highlighted in this series is what's happening is a transfer of assets from traditional utilities to private equity firms. Because private equity firms have figured out we can run this thing for 10 years, get our money out, we're getting really good, uh, cheap money to buy these plants. And so again, there's these perverse incentives to keep these plants uh, running. And this is uh, building on what Anne talked about, utility capex. Again, since 2008, the trend line is up, up, up. They just keep spending more and more. Part of it is on transmission. A lot of it is on natural gas plants. It's a, each of these natural gas plants costs close to a billion dollars to build. So if you think about 200 plants, $200 billion, think about that if we put that into microgrids and decentralizing the transmission grid and new technology. Think about what we could do with that kind of money. Um, and this is, the next two slides are pretty wonky. I'll go through them quickly. This is reserve margins. Reserve margins are the cushion of excess capacity that you build into the system above your anticipated peak load. So if you think your peak load is going to be 100 megawatts, Target reserve margins tend to be 15 to 17%. So you build an extra 15%, you got 115 megawatts on the system so that you've always got a cushion so the lights don't go out. Look at where these reserve margins, the pale blue bars are prospective, which means it'll probably be there, but we can't count on it. The darker blue are anticipated, which means it's there, we know it'll be available. And then the red slashes are the targets. PJM has prospective res reserve margins of 60% of excess capacity. It's madness. And PJM is going through this big effort to reform their capacity market so far. They've been trying to do it for two years. Uh, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, rejected their proposal. It's a total fiasco, and nobody knows what's going to happen. So again, you can go back to this slide and, and, and look at the scale of the overbuild that's happening. And finally, this is my most wonky slide. Here's one of the market structures that's leading to this. It's the capacity market in PJM. And they have an auction for power for three years out where you bid into it and you're not bidding to sell electricity. You're bidding to say, at this price, we will be available if you need us. And, and the utilities, the generators get paid that money whether they sell any electricity or not. They just get payments. So again, it's one of these capital structures that incentivizes people to build these plants, develop these plants, and then keep them running whether the power is needed or not. So I can get into some of that uh, a little more later, but uh, thanks for listening. Great. Thank you all. Pretty good on the time. Um, well, I will take that moderator's prerogative to ask uh, the first question, but I want to jump on the morphine analogy. Um, Tony Ingrafia, as a professor at Cornell, was a big critic of this natural gas as the bridge fuel to the future, and he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times some time ago saying it's not a bridge, it's a gangplank. Uh, and and the, the point is, is that you can't get from one place to another, which is what a bridge is supposed to do for you, by doing effectively the same thing. And so CH4, which is methane, is better on a per BTU basis when you burn it. But here in Colorado, and I've been writing a lot about this over the last three years, we have this huge problem of, of a, this shale gas fracking uh, issue all through the county that we're in soon and the county that's just south of us, Weld County where there are 25,000 wells um, that are currently uh, active. And the amount of fugitive methane alone, that's the methane that escapes 
as they're doing the drilling and the production process, which even the state admits they don't even know what those numbers are. It's so great, and methane is a much more powerful and quick-acting uh, greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. So we're really trading one problem for another. And as, as Rick pointed out, the investment just jumped from coal to natural gas, but it, I don't think it's getting us to where we want to be. But I, I'll, I'll start with a question uh, to Jonathan. We were talking before, because I, I have solar panels on my house that XL is it's in their grid. But uh, the impression that I have as a citizen of Colorado for the last 25 years is that XL was brought kicking and screaming to the table to do that. When Amendment 37 we were talking about in 2007, I believe, uh, the citizens of Colorado said, XL, you got to get 10% of your electricity that we use from renewable sources. And XL said, no, we don't want to do that, or we can't do that. They did turn around. But so the question is, are you leading? Are you following? What, what's, where's the push-pull with you? And I mean you as a big electricity, you know, PUC-governed utilities. What, what, what do we need to do to help you help us? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a multi-part question. Yes. I'm not sure uh, which of those I'll tackle first. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, Colorado is a great example um, of kind of this transition. So Colorado did pass, I think, the first uh, uh, voted on renewable standard in the country. It was a ballot initiative uh, in the mid-2000s. It was a 10% standard. Um, at the time, Excel uh, was against that standard. Um, it was simply against it from a cost perspective at that time, and we've seen massive gains in um, in the reduction of cost of renewables. Um, but again, we are the ones that send a bill to customers' mailboxes every day. And, and in partnership with the Utility Commission, we have the responsibility to make sure that our product is affordable. Now, fast forward today to today, those renewable standards have advanced, and we are well beyond, multiples beyond what the requirements are for all those standards. So we pivoted from being resistant to a requirement to far exceeding that requirement. And, and what has shifted? One is we figured out how to do it. Um, we have been able to integrate, even if you go back to kind of um, engineer positions back in the early, mid, then later 2000s, um, there's huge challenges with integrating these renewables into our system. Um, We've partnered with NREL and a whole host of others on wind forecasting techniques. All sorts of stuff has changed on the operational side to allow us to do that. And then the second is the economics. Um, I think, and, and we're, we're going to have some fun debates here over the next uh, half an hour or so, but fundamentally you see two major shifts kind of or diet discussions going on in the industry right now. One is on this idea from a dispatchable generator, so one that our engineers can turn on and off to one that's intermittent. Um, that's one shift. The second is this debate around centralized versus decentralized. Um, I would share from a company perspective, I mean, we're relatively technology agnostic. Like, I, I'm not picking a winner. Our objective is clear. We want to decarbonize our system, and we want to do that in the most economic way possible. And so I think when you get to this kicking and screaming or driving the change, we're going to drive the change as quickly as we possibly can as a company, assuming that we continue to honor the table stakes that we have. And frankly, we all have a shared interest in that, because if we do it wrong, it will undermine the transition. Um, I know there is, for example, a lot of resistance against natural gas. 
Um, I get that. I mean, it is a trade-off in one perspective. Um, I would I would highlight a number of things with that though. Is that the the carbon intensity of natural gas? And again, we can talk about fugitive methane. And there's other. That's not my industry. There are challenges that need to be addressed there. But overall, the carbon intensity of natural gas is about a third of coal. So already you're making a massive gain. The second is the way we operate coal plants versus natural gas plants is fundamentally different. Most of those new plants that are coming, um, that are being built, and we're proposing to build some of them, we operate around 10% of the time versus a baseload coal plant that's typically used 80 or 90% of the time. So you have one-third the carbon intensity, you're using it one-seventh or one-eighth the amount of time, and it's not perfect. I don't disagree. And it is in conflict with our ultimate goal of being carbon-free. But if we want to facilitate the transition, we still need resources like that to help that happen. And so we can talk about that more. I'll give my – I'm sure you'll get a different perspective here, but we can talk about that more. Well, on that, before I open to the questions, talk among yourselves here. <laughs> well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to pick on Jonathan a little bit because he's here and he he's can defend himself. He's the Perry Penley of this um, panel, guys. As it happens, on uh, Thursday, October 10th, which was yesterday, we put up uh, what we call a data dispatch is basically a chart heavy story about and the headline is XL Energy's path to carbon free power leans on natural gas. And just to provide some detail on what Jonathan just said, which is, yes, we are going to build some of these um, XL plans to significantly expand its natural gas fired fleet in the coming years, building more than 2,500 megawatts of new natural gas generation capacity. And so, again, I don't I don't uh, downplay the conflict, the dilemma that we are in, and, and especially a a uh, big utility like XL. I will say that what Ann is alluding to, I think, comes back to consumer choice. Okay, we're going to give you a choice. Do you want to pay more for your power if it means we might be able to shut down some of this fossil fossil fuel generation? Are you willing to accept maybe? a slightly higher risk of some brownouts during the summer if we can shut down you know i don't because we have this because we have this uh, outmoded regulatory structure again utilities you know a, a century ago utility executives were told you have one job keep the lights on and so now what we found is that keeping the lights on to an absolute fail-safe degree, which is impossible, as PG&E is finding out in California, is prohibitively expensive to uh, even attempt. And so the suggestion that, well, maybe, you know, the lights won't always be on, that's anathema if you're a person like Jonathan, and I totally get that. But I think what we need to do is return some of that flexibility and some of that choice to consumers and say, are you willing to accept dot, 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 <coughs> for a guarantee that we will shut these power plants down, these fossil fuel plants down within 10 years or whatever it is. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, but I'm also not going to concede that that's even the case, right? Because what we found and we are finding is that the centralized system is not reliable. I actually was a regulator in the PJM area during the polar vortex. Um, many of the centralized plants did not operate. So this kind of fiction out there that renewables are all intermittent, they're not reliable, it, there was never 
a ton of fact behind it, except for the fact that, right, the sun shines during the day, it doesn't shine at night. Well, guess what? We have batteries now, right? The price of batteries are going down dramatically. And so because of that, the intermittency is not the situation it was before. And I think we have to get beyond it, right? We have to dig a little deeper and say, technology is changing. So my challenge to Excel, which our second headquarters is in Denver, by the way, so we would love to do this, is why don't we take one of those plants you're planning to build and step back and say, let's put out a request for alternatives, competitive alternatives, and see what comes up. As I said earlier, in the Los Angeles area, Mayor Garcetti has said that he would like to shut down three gas plants by 2030. Sunra did some analysis to look at uh, the number of rooftops that actually, not all rooftops can handle solar, but the ones we tried, we did an analysis to see the ones that were sort of good candidates for it, and we figured out that there was enough capacity there that sun run alone in doing solar and batteries on residential rooftops could uh, um, do away with the need of one of those gas plants, right? So the, the ability is there. The costs are only going to get cheaper over the next 10 years. And I think this issue of stranded assets is so important, especially as a former regulator, because when you're asked as a regulator to approve the cost of one of these plants, you amortize it over 30 years, and it doesn't look that bad every month on a customer's bill. But when it ends up being stranded, particularly in a fully regulated utility, that all comes back to the customer. Somebody has to bail out that plant. And we have to take this longer view, and we have to take a look at where we think the cost curves are going to go. So this is really the time for us to all work with the utilities and say, let's see, do you really need those plants? Because I, I actually was at a... Uh, McKinsey um, conference uh, about a week ago, and they showed some really alarming charts, I think, that they had released during Climate Week. We're not talking 2050. We're not even talking 2030. We have to start right now to significantly decarbonize. So the fact that we have any utility that is publicly regulated planning to build more plants that are putting more carbon in the air without really sharpening the pencils to see if there's a renewable alternative um, is really is really disconcerting because we do have technologies not everything I'm not saying we can close down all the gas plants but I do think that we really need to um, take extra diligence right now before we start uh, creating more of these long-term plants is, 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 uh, so are the pencils as sharp as they they can be uh, Jonathan yeah I mean I, I want to really clarify something here that all of the acquisitions of generation that we're making as a utility is done through a fully competitive process and is technology agnostic it is open um, Colorado is a great example I mean we just ran what I would consider the most substantive transformation in a single plan for a state um, in in one resource plan, which is our kind of regulatory process we go through, um, we're adding 1,100 megawatts of wind, 700 megawatts of solar, 275 megawatts of new storage, um, and 380 megawatts of gas. And that was all done. Everything was on a level playing field. And you can see that the, the renewables were competing very effectively with that. Um, now, again, there's challenges with that. Um, and I'll talk about those here in one second. But the, this idea that it's not, there's some sort of you know, finger on the scale, that's not happening. Um, these resources are competing against each other to come to the system. And again, you look at the resources we're taking, you can see there's a dominant amount of renewables in that mix. But to integrate that, and, and again, Colorado is a great example of the challenges here. So if you think of, and I live here, I live in Denver, um, 
on one side of Colorado, the population, we have a big set of mountains, and there's very limited ability to move electricity back and forth across those. On the other side, and many of you probably know this, the United States grid is kind of divided in two, and it's a reliability-based premise that's been in place uh, for a long time. Really, there's three, but Texas likes to do its own thing. Um, so on the right side or on the east side of Colorado, you basically have very limited ability to move power back and forth. So Colorado really does sit on an island. Um, and um, those resources that we integrate into the system, and again, we view that we can probably integrate, even on a very islanded basis, 60 plus percent of our system we can manage with renewable energy. But to do that, we need resources to integrate that. And this is where we go into, you know, to Rick's kind of wonky slides. This is kind of like wonky utility world, <laughs> is that when you think about, like, when you plug that plug in, 120 volts, 60 hertz, that's the power quality that pretty much every device in the United States needs. It takes thousands of pieces of equipment on our system to deliver that product. If you alter that by very much, and particularly on the Hertz perspective, if you alter that just a little bit, the things that we love to use don't work anymore. They break. And it takes equipment on our side to do that. So again, I don't want to take away from the fact that, again, as a nation, we clearly unequivocally need to move towards decarbonization. Um, the question is, is just what's the best way to do it? And if we start to erode the product that we provide, if we start to undermine, and it is a true life necessity, if we start to undermine the deliverability of that product or make it too expensive, it, the transition doesn't work and it slows it down. Um, I'd give one last comment here. So we talked, um, Ann mentioned the polar vortex. And again, I'm a believer in storage. The costs are coming down. It's a great product. Um, I think we'll see more of it integrated. It will help integrate more renewables. It does a lot of great stuff. Um, but we had mo multiple, not just one. The polar vortex is the one that gets the headlines. But we had multiple events just last winter in our upper Midwest system that we had multiple days where we had basically no wind and no solar production. So the question is, is would it be cost effective and it's decentralized or centralized? You can have either debate to set up a storage system that would have enough energy to keep the economy going, not just for four hours, which is your typical battery today, but for days. And frankly, it's just not cost effective. I'm agnostic on the technology. I'm just saying that from a cost perspective, it's just not workable yet. And so again, it's not perfect, but having a, a plant you can turn on that can ride you through that event that we use very infrequently that may be ultimately stranded, or by the way, it could be repowered with hydrogen, or we could use methanization to power that plant in the future. There's a lot of, or capture the carbon. There's a lot of things you could do. They're not ready today. Um, but finding a way to make that work is definitely our focus. And so I think we, again, we have varying opinions here, of course. Um, I think we all have the same objective, ultimately. The question is just, what's the best path to get there? Well, that was the point of the panel, is to get some different perspectives. Rick, did you have something quick to say? Because yeah, I, I want the audience participation right. part of this to begin. Just briefly, um, Jonathan mentioned Texas, and they like to do things their own way. What Texas did was they put $8 billion into a transmission system to bring wind power from West Texas, where the wind blows pretty steadily most of the year, um, to the markets of Dallas and Austin and San Antonio. And they, it's called the CREZ, and it's this huge transmission investment, um, which happened under Rick Perry, believe it or not. And so 
Texas has become a world leader in wind power. And so I think we tend to think of intermittency as a time problem, right? The sun doesn't shine at night or the wind doesn't blow um, at certain times of the day. You can also think of it as a problem of distance. And so when you talk about transmission, if I were the energy czar, I would say, let's build a modern transition transmission system. And there are all sorts of problems associated with that in, in terms of property rights and rights of way and all that. But I'm just inviting you to also think of it as the sun is always shining and the wind's always blowing somewhere. And can we transport that electricity? Can we make electricity more transportable? Okay. Um, SEJ members who are working journalists first, let's take a couple of those questions. It's, we're on the honor system here. I saw your hand first. Uh, Chris Clayton, I'm an ag writer from the Midwest, and that translation on transmission is what I want to ask about is, uh, Jonathan and Rick, about policy blocking transmissions, and my family in Missouri that have been very resistant to the Grain Belt Express, yeah. try yeah. to transmit from Kansas over to Illinois, wind power, and that fight has been going on now for years. Uh, what needs to change, I guess, in terms of changing transmission that's going to allow uh, more ability for utilities to move it through? Uh, and is, why can't we simply bury these kind of lines uh, and move it through without, uh, instead of having it uh, uh, towers? You want to start? No, go ahead. Uh, I mean, the bury side is just cost extraordinarily prohibitive. Um, I mean, 10x more from a cost perspective to bury a large line versus have it overhead. Um, but I mean, you're highlighting absolutely a critical issue. I mean, the reality is, is that, um, you know, the traditional NIMBY, not in my backyard, has kind of tr pivoted a little bit. Now, when you look at the investment out in the rural communities, people want it in their backyard. They don't want it in their neighbor's backyard because they want the tax, they, they get revenue from that as a farmer. Um, so the people that are directly impacted tend to be supportive because they're getting revenue streams. But everybody else, I mean, there are, there are again, no technology is without cost. There's, there's noise issues, you know, line of sight issues, all sorts of things like that. Um, but it is a challenge. And I think you're running into both state policy issues and then you have federal policy issues as you go um, between states. Um, I don't expect any type of substantive shift at the federal side. Things are kind of bogged down there a little bit, at least right now. Um, but I do think that as you look at the states, um, you know, I think Rick mentioned you have a whole bunch of states that are pushing renewable standards, pushing carbon standards. Those are getting paired with follow-on transmission standards that will make it easier. That'll make the movement of you know rurally, rurally located renewable energy move it to population centers. That process, I think, will go a little smoother in the in the foreseeable future. Um, so there's a good example that's happening just north of here in Wyoming. It's called the Choke Cherry Sierra Madre uh, Solar Project, which is being funded by. Phil Anschutz, the local Denver tycoon. And it's a hugely ambitious solar project. And there's a lot of sun in Wyoming and a lot of wind. And what he wants, what they want to do is build what's called the Trans-West Express, which like Grain Belt is a huge transmission system. And they want to bring that power down to somewhere in Utah where it can connect up to the grid that serves Phoenix and LA and the markets of the Southwest. And again, they're encountering enormous problems. They've been working on this for at least a decade. He might pull it off, I don't know, but it's it's still very much <coughs> up in the air. So the 
the the obstacles to transmission, we could do a whole session on that. It's policy, it's property rights um, for people who don't necessarily, unlike the farmers I talked to in West Texas who have been able to keep their farms in the family because of the wind towers that they get um, lease fees from, it doesn't always work that way with transmission, and often it ends up being eminent domain, and they just you know go in and take the land, and and it's a it's a very thorny issue. So it's not there are no easy fixes here, and and certainly building huge transmission systems is not one of them. But it is something we should look at. All right, I want to remind all of us that we got to repeat the question. Oh, thank you. So yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I can address that. Um, the question the question is. How does offshore wind fit into this evolving world of renewable energy? And more specifically, what's happening with the Trump administration around possibly blocking some of these? So very briefly, what happened was, um, and I may not get it totally right, Jan, but um, the uh, Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management um, is blocking one of the, the early, if not the first, offshore wind project off the coast of New England uh, because of concerns over fisheries, et cetera. And it's very much a, a NIMBY problem. And, and my answer is I'm not sure if that's coming from dedicated scientists at BOEM or if it's coming from the political angle of the Trump administration. There are certainly people who will tell you the latter. Um, I want to shift that question a little bit. Look at what's happening in the North Sea. They are building huge wind farms with huge towers out there, and it's an incredible engineering feat that's going on, and they're building the transmission to bring it both to the U.K. and to Northern Europe, and it's just astonishing to watch. And, and it's interesting because they're shutting in a lot of the North Sea oil wells, but what they're finding is those platforms are now useful for substations to you know, bring some of the power in and then and bring it to, to shore. It's interesting in Connecticut, so I went to school in Connecticut, and um, I've got friends who are still there, and like once a year they send me the latest list of mayors who have gone to prison and for corruption <laughs> in Connecticut. And, and like the town of Bridgeport, I hope you're not from Bridgeport, but Bridgeport is famous for that, and now they want to become the offshore wind hub and have all the maintenance boats coming in, and they're, they're talking about building a terminal or converting a terminal. And so the opportunities for malfeasance in <laughs> Connecticut are just, it's going to be a rich story going forward. Okay, so, so we've, we've got under 15 minutes left. Please try to make your questions questions, and... There you go. Hi, it's Tom Morton, K2 Radio, Casper, Wyoming, uh, the heart of uh, heroin and <laughs> um, This is all wow. very nice. And, um, but what do you say to a, an economy like Wyoming's that basically depends, I mean, it's gone through all sorts of fits with coal mines. I mean, that's a whole screw up 10 ways to Sunday. And also we're a big producer of natural gas. So kind of from a pastoral level, speaking as a guy who's trained to be a minister, how do you deal with that? Because I mean, do you just go to a, do you go to Gillette and say, y'all, we're just going renewable and go do something else? I mean, it's, it's a pastoral kind of question because we're dealing with people's lives. So I'm going to let them answer, but I'm going to I'm going to do a little self promotion first. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Coal Wars, and there's a whole chapter on Gillette, Wyoming. So I would encourage you to go buy it and read it. Good book. It. 
Uh, I'll jump in real quick. I mean, it's a great question. Um, I, I Maybe I would just answer in the form of an example. So we received approval a few years ago to shut down two of our largest coal plants in um, Becker, Minnesota. Um, largest tax base in the community, largest employer in the community. Um, so as part of that um, transition, uh, we did get approval. It's still in process, but to replace that large coal plant with a smaller size natural gas plant um, that has employee base, has tax base. Uh, we've also brought um, economic development and we have a partnered with a customer to bring a large data center that it's a very strong backboned part of our system because of all the existing transmission infrastructure there. Um, so is a is a well-positioned location for a data center, um, brings huge tax base to the community. Um, and um, we and others have uh, work, been working on at land acquisition, and I think it's very <laughs> likely that we'll look to try to leverage that existing infrastructure and transmission injection capability to probably build more renewables. So I think the you know, supporting one for one the labor side is challenging because you typically see in the coal industry it's very people heavy, particularly in the mining. We're not a mining company, but that's where you see a really heavy uh, workforce. Um, but you can still, and I think you do have some obligations to help support the community as far as that transition goes. And so that's a good example. I think that community has been very supportive of the transition, even though it's resulting in, in the loss of coal generation. And yeah. Yeah, just briefly, I think that. Um, clearly, the issue of jobs and, and job training and how you transition people is really important. Um, the fastest growing job in the United States is that of a residential solar installer. Right? We have over 200,000 people in the country who are solar installers. It's something that can be trained. There's a nice job path um, from there. And I think this goes to, again, looking at the broader costs that we're talking about. Like, if you have an opportunity to enable a solar market, residential solar market, to get started with the right regulations, that is going to lead to opportunities for salespeople, for um, installers, <laughs> for inspectors. Um, the other uh, just resource I can point you to is there's an organization called IREC, the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, very cool nonprofit um, that I happen to sit on the board of, uh, but they have a whole uh, workforce training uh, component where they've tried to go and create these job maps, and they work with DOE on that uh, to try to help people who are in that situation or even young people who are trying to figure out, how do I get into these new industries? What's the kind of training that I need? Uh, but we we desperately need you know more uh, folks that want to do installation, and so I don't know what the situation is you know particularly where you live, but a lot of it in places where states have embraced um, residential and community solar, uh, there's growth and there's opportunities. And just quickly, Colorado just passed a law that uh, allocated some money for retraining in some of the coal communities. Judith? Sure. I think uh, so. I'll repeat the question. I think Judy began with saying Excel's great, and then <laughs> I stopped. I didn't hear the rest of it. Um, <laughs> So uh, Judy's question was around the difficulty of interconnecting distributed and community-based solar. Um, I think there are, I mean, one is it's new stuff. I mean, there have been some issues. Um, I think really, I mean, I'm not in that world. I live mostly on the utility scale. Um, I think a lot of the challenges, that, frankly, are just the fact that we as a company have been we're staffed at a certain level. And Denver's a great example of that it's not just growth and interconnections of 
DG Solar. It's been a massive growth in Denver. So our same engineering groups that are trying to help get new buildings interconnected downtown are the same groups that are helping getting a, a, a residential solar system permitted and approved. So it is a product that gets injected onto our system. There's um, impact of that injection to the equipment that we have today. So it just needs to be studied to make sure it's safe. Um, I don't, I mean, I can just say from my own perspective, I don't feel any resistance to trying to integrate those products. I think we've had a, a rooftop program for years and years and years. We've had solar garden programs for years. Again, I think that's a great um, product we offer. It's something customers want. It's part of our mix, and I think we're, we're, we're overall supportive of it. I think the challenges with just getting it done are, frankly, just the workload and capacity of a city like Denver going through a massive growth boom and the fact that our team is trying to interconnect new load, new DG, new solar gardens, and that just workload gets spread along. And again, I think we talk about challenges of, of our overall employment. We're looking at basically the lowest unemployment in 50 years. Getting people to want to come work for a utility is not always the easiest thing. So Yeah, I'd, I'd love to add to that. Yeah, Thanks. Uh, <laughs> this is a huge issue I'm, uh, across the country. And uh, for any of you from New England, uh, if you're out there, a very interesting order just came out uh, relating to National Grid, uh, where they're going to be audited now, which is a huge deal uh, from that commission, uh, because of the resistance that they have put up to solar interconnection. There have been huge delays, um, really more. Uh, definitely we're facing them. We're facing uh, challenges where they're making us require multiple meters when we want to have sto storage and solar, even though we have plenty of examples around the country where that's not necessary. Um, uh, the, the community solar folks have not been able to interconnect at all. So the, so the DPU in Massachusetts just said, that's it. You're being obstructionist. We're going to audit your staffing. We're going to audit your how you're complying with our regulations. We're serious. We have Carmen goals. Guys, we have to work together on this. And so it really is serious because what happens is we go, we spend money to go out to meet with customers, sit at their kitchen table. They get interested in the project, and then they're told you've got to wait 60 days. You've got to wait 90 days. And then they cancel, right? They get frustrated. We can't give them any, you know. And what it does is it increases the cost of this whole process, and it frustrates customers customers. You know, everyone wants to talk about customer experience. This is a terrible customer experience. And what we're finding is that in other parts of the world, it's not the same way. In Australia and Germany, uh, the cost of putting up distributed solar is about a dollar a watt. It's, it's closer to $3 a watt here. And why? It's because interconnection delays, permitting delays. One of the exciting things that's going on right now, separate from our trying to work with utilities to expedite the interconnection process um, and to support them getting the resources they need. I mean, my view is I'd rather Excel spend money on that than on planning these huge coal plant, uh, uh, gas plants. Like, maybe it's like where the resource is being allocated within the utility, but there's an, also an issue with permitting. And this is fair. You know, you've got thousands of municipalities all over the country, some with very few staffs and very little... Um, money uh, to pay for them. They see a new technology. Let's say we have solar panels and they're kind of used to that and now we're bringing in batteries. And so we get the same issue of like, whoa, you know, we don't know what this means. We've got to look at all these designs. Lots of delay, lots of costs. So fortunately, um, Congress has authorized money. DOE just granted NREL, um, I think $750,000 to help create a tool that municipalities can use that's called Solar App. And we're expecting that to be done in the next year. And we're really excited about it because the whole idea is to give 
uh, local governments the you know a little bit more resource so they don't have to each individually start from scratch to do this because what we really want to do is we want to make sure that they're safely installed we want to make sure it interconnects um, we want to make sure that um, what we're doing, we, we think often these solar and storage units are actually taking pressure off of the system. So let's work together with the utility engineers and let's get a few leaders like Excel. Some of the California utilities actually are very good at this. They've gotten interconnection down to a couple of days. You have other places in the country where it's a couple of months. So let's get EEI and the leaders in the utility industry to work together to say what's the best practice and let's as an industry figure out how to make this a good customer experience. Mm. All right. Unfortunately, we have less than five minutes left, and Rick gave me the idea of a, an, of a bonus lightning round uh, spontaneous question for each of you when you said energy czar. So you are each uh, going to be energy czar for the uh, next five minutes, and you can do two things with a wave of the wand that will get us on a pathway to uh, something that might be a livable planet. Um, Two or three bullet points, and I mean under a minute. I know it's ridiculous. Uh, I've, got, I've got one that'll take less than a minute. Um, advanced nuclear reactors that burn thorium. He wrote another book about that. <laughs> okay, I have to take advantage of having all these reporters here to say that uh, one of the only remaining federal policies right now that are supporting um, reducing carbon is the investment tax credit. And the solar investment tax credit is due to start phasing down in three months, uh, which is really, really unfortunate because that's what's really making solar and batteries. And, and even wind is now interested in also getting access to the investment tax credit. And so we are pushing along with many allies, environmental groups and others around the country to say, please let's hold off on phasing this down until we figure out what the next pathway is. You know, the clean power plan was, I guess, shelved, sort of. And um, we don't have a carbon price, and I do think a carbon price is important, but I think it's going to take a little time. So would love anyone's attention. You're the czar. You could do it with the wave So <laughs> as a czar, I would extend the investment tax credit for five years and really try to also focus some incentives on battery technology and also uh, deployment so that more and more people can have uh, the ability for resiliency as we continue to face these uh, really difficult climate situations. Last word, Czar Adelman. Do czars have wands? I'm still kind of getting to <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, that, you know, we work in eight states. Those eight states are making progress at very differing degrees, um, despite our commitment to it. And that's just because there's no national standards. Um, so I think federal policy would be one that would really help. Um, I think the second is that um, we need, if I, again, was had this czar wand, um, investment in technology. Um, that can't, you know, we're not an R&D company, we're a utility. Uh, we, we love to see this technology come to market economically. Um, it will take investment uh, to make that happen. So uh, a more holistic approach to technology investment. I'm still um, stuck on what Ann said, that um, InRail is going to work on an app that's going to take a year to develop. Google could do that tomorrow. So <laughs> I just want to point that out. That's more than an app. Yeah, yeah. It's a system. All right. Ann, Rick, Jonathan, big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We'll all be mingling. Let's go hear the governor.